morning, church. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. The error in the bulletin is entirely my fault. I was in different minds about what to address this morning in follow-up to what we looked at last week. And uh, late in the game, I changed from Romans 5 to Psalm 73. So Psalm chapter 73, our focus this morning will be particularly from verse 16 to 28. That will be our timing, but I will read the entire psalm just for context uh, to be able to, uh, you can uh, get to understand what the psalmist is dealing with here. Hear God's word from Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Of the many challenges of the Christian life, one of the biggest 
is the question of how do we change? How do we change? There is a reality when we read the pages of the New Testament that we have been born again, that we belong to a new creation, in fact, that we are a new creation, that our inner selves are saints and are sanctified. And yet we, and we rejoice in those realities, and we rejoice in the reality that we are new, that we've been made aright, that we are walking with the Lord until we sin, until the moment we fall, until sometimes we don't just sin, but we sin fantastically. Horribly. Last week, for example, we considered the question of malice. And after examining ourselves and perhaps finding ourselves riddled with certain kinds of malice, we have to think now, what are we supposed to do? How do we change? We have this reality of that we're new beings that are still acting in the old ways. Now, there are a few answers that have been offered throughout Christian history To the question of how do I change? I see something wrong in my life. I see a a habit pattern that does not displease, that does not please the Lord, that is not congruent with my true new nature. I see that. So what do I do with it? How do I change? There are a number of answers that have been given throughout Christian history. The first is that we need to work on willpower. That's been that's a big one throughout history that you, you just need to work. Just need to work on willpower. Find all kinds of strategies to increase your willpower to a a particular point such that you always act in line with the will of God. But there are problems with that approach. The problem with that approach is that I need willpower in order to work on my lack of willpower. (laughs) I need that willpower in the first place. You're telling me to work on something that I need. The solution needs to be deeper than that. You can't just tell me to work on willpower. The second solution that we've heard, uh, that we've seen in some certain sections of Christian history, is that I just need to remove myself from all kinds of temptation. Let me just remove myself from temptation. Let me go somewhere to the mountains and live a life of seclusion so that I don't actually have to be tempted and then fall and sin in horrible ways. Now, the problem with that should be obvious to you. You haven't actually fixed the problem. You've just ran away. The problem is with you. You're just decreasing the time, the number of times that you actually see the problem. You're like a patient who doesn't want to go to the doctor to hear the report about their sickness. The sickness is still there. The problem is still there. That's not a solution. I have not changed, even if I just avoid all the opportunities for temptation. That has not changed me in any way. Another solution that is very popular in many sections is that I need more laws. I need more rules. I need to add more laws on top of the laws that Christ gives me so that I can be very far from sin. I can be very far from temptation. So if I just, if I just heap up more laws for myself and give myself extra rules, then I'll be fine because I'll be further and further away from breaking the true laws of Christ. The problem with that approach, while it appears wise, is that it, that it is generally destructive for this reason. Law does only one thing, and that is to expose sin. Law rules, uh, little things to say, don't do this, do this, don't, all of those kinds of things, while they appear wise, 
they, they don't actually change anything. All they do is expose the sin. Law does not change a person. A law instead condemns. It tells you what you cannot do. It shows you what you are not. There's no power to change in laws. So the question then is, remains for us this morning, how do we change? We find problems in ourselves. How do we change? How do we grow in Christ's likeness? What is the next step after I've examined myself and found a problem in me? Psalm 73 shows us an autobiographical story of Asaph who went on a journey of change. He desired evil. He was sick with envy. And then he had a meditation. He went into the sanctuary of the Lord. He had a meditation that changed everything for him. He had been full of envy of the sweet and easy life of those who hate God. Through his own words, he says that his mind was beastly. And for a time, he was overcome with envy. And he was tempted even to share his grievances with those, with the rest of God's people. He had this envy and he felt like sharing it with others. But in verse 16, he enters the sanctuary of God and he meditates on four benefits that he has being a believer in covenant with God. He meditates on a number of truths of the gospel, the wonder of being with God, and that is what produces change in him. That is what sets his mind and his heart aright. Look with me at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. We're not told here the particular occasion for his going into the sanctuary. Because he was a faithful Jew who lived righteously and also was the singer in Israel, he was the worship leader in Israel, we, we are right in assuming that this was just a normal going to the sanctuary for him. He was somebody who was constantly going to the sanctuary, living a righteous life, as he says in verse 13. He was living a righteous life, trying to uh, walk in covenant with the Lord, but he was wrestling with this envy, dealing with this envy that he has of the wicked. And then as he goes into the sanctuary of the Lord, and in one particular uh, entrance into the sanctuary, or at least a succession of entrances into the sanctuary, the, word, the wordage is not clear, his meditation turns towards the truth of the gospel. You must realize that when he entered into the sanctuary, it's not like he just entered into the doors of the sanctuary and then something mystically happened. But rather what happens with his, is he's entering into the sanctuary and he's hearing the truths of what it is to be in covenant with the true God of Israel. As he meditates on those realities, as he hears these realities in the sanctuary of the Lord, as he comes face to face with those realities, he's, he came to a point where he changed and this knot was untied. The first thing I want to bring to your attention this morning, saints, is that meditating on the gospel and its benefits is repeatedly the one thing we are told to do when it comes to our involvement in our change. 
meditating on the truths of the gospel and its benefits and what the gospel means and who Christ is, meditating on that is the one thing we are repeatedly told over and over and over to do when it comes to our change. See, it is in beholding Christ when what He has achieved for us that we change from glory to glory. You see, friends, there's, there's two ways you can attempt to produce change. You can put on a show and pretend you have changed. You can do an external work. This is what I now look like. I was like this. Now this is what I'm like and I want you to understand that this is who I am. You can do something that's entirely external or you can have a change that is organic and internal. As God's people, we do not want the fake, unreal, external change. We want the inner change. Yes, we do want a change of behavior, but we want a change of desire first. We don't want to just stop how we're behaving. We want to stop desiring to behave in those evil ways. The change that we want, the change that we need, is an internal change. I want you to just think about this with me for a moment. Proverbs says this, By fear of the Lord... A man departs from evil. Yeah? So Proverbs says, By fear of the Lord, a man departs from evil. When I do evil, think with me, when I do evil, does that mean, therefore, that I do not fear the Lord? Now you can say that in general, truthfully, but when you do evil as a Christian, is it because you don't fear the Lord? Have you stopped fearing the Lord? You're entirely, there's no fear of the Lord in you when you are now doing this thing that is evil. Here's the reality. My fear of the Lord is not strong enough. That's the problem. I have a fear of the Lord. If I'm in covenant with the Lord and the Lord has saved me by His Spirit, I am in covenant with Him. I do have a fear of the Lord. But the problem is sometimes my fear of the Lord internally is not strong enough. It is distractible. It is numbable by different things. It's, it, it moves this way and that. It, is, it, it wanes in strength. It goes up and down. And therefore, at certain times, I act in evil ways. So what we want is that our fear of the Lord is strong enough internally in our inner man such that we depart from evil. Our fear of the Lord needs to grow and strengthen and reach a maturity such that we do not stay near. We, we hate sin. We want to be like Moses. Remember Moses. Moses went to the mountain. He beheld God. And what happened to his face? He shone. You remember that? He came down, shining bright, changed, shining, glowing. Because he had, he had beheld glory. He had been so near the glory of God for such a long time that he, he was, his, his body could not help but to be changed. Albeit temporarily, with a glory that faded because, of course, he had to come down from the mountain and then live on earth. But he was changed. He was so near holiness. He was so near the strength and power and glory of God that he was affected. And we also want the same thing. We want to enter into the sanctuary and meditate on the truths of the gospel such that we also are changed 
albeit slowly, organically from the inside, to shine brighter and brighter. Now, lest you think that I'm just pulling this from some obscure passage in the Psalms, some poetic passage in the Psalms, I want to show you a number of places where the apostles in the New Testament say the same thing, but in different ways. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, after Paul has explained the reality that the the resurrection power of Christ lives in us, he says this in verse 11, he says, So you also must consider, you also must think, you also must change the way that you think about selves and think like this. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When asked, when he asked in the beginning of Romans chapter 6, he's asking the question, so then what, might, what shall we do? Shall we sin more so that grace might abound no more? He says, no. How can we who have died with Christ and he, Christ, has been raised again, how can we who have been raised again with Christ there continue to live in sin? He wants us to think that the power for us to say no to sin is in the fact that Christ has risen again from the dead. He even says in Romans 6, if you were to study that passage, he even says in that, in that chapter that do not offer your members to unrighteousness, but rather offer your members to righteousness. If you just had Romans chapter 6, if imagine you were some, living somewhere Somewhere, in, somewhere far away, like somewhere in the Karoo or something. You're living somewhere and the only copy of the Bible that you had was Romans chapter 6. This is what you'd believe. You'd believe that the reason we sin is because we do not think truly about what we are. That's what you'd believe. Because that's his argument in Romans chapter 6. Part of our problem with our sinning is not because we're entirely powerless now. He says now we're born again. We're not entirely powerless. It's that we do not think clearly and effectively about what we are and what we have received from the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, when we are feeling faint hearted and weary because of the hardness of the fight against sin, what does he say we ought to do? Hebrews 12 verse 3, he says this, consider Think, meditate on him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Imagine, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying to you and me. When I'm growing weary and faint-hearted in my battle with sin, the key, the power for me is to think about him. Is to meditate on him who himself was, was pressed, hard pressed by, by others who hated him. And yet he remained without sin so that I can enter into the heavenly gates. He says, consider, think. He says, he continues on in verse 4. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's trying to say, think about him. He resisted until the shedding of his blood. For you. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul says another, a similar thing, but now coming coming to it from another angle. 
In Colossians chapter 2 from verse 8, he says, We ought not to let others capture our minds with wrong philosophy about righteousness. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, on your, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is Paul's solution? Protect your mind from those who are coming with all kinds of rules. Rather, think on Christ and what he has achieved for you. Are you seeing seeing the pattern? Think on what it is that has been achieved. And we also need to now protect our minds, protect our meditations from from error. Don't think that by exertion you will achieve anything. Don't think that by, by, will, by, by adding something and adding all these, these rules, this do not taste, do not touch, all of these things, you will actually produce fruit in your life. You won't. But rather think on Christ and what He has achieved. And thereby you will see a growth in yourself that is organic and internal. Finally, 1 Peter 1 from verse 13. Peter says this, also coming coming at the same thing from the angle of hope. It says this, Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hearts must hope in what, it is, what is to come. In many ways, if we do not hope in the right thing, we will not act in the right way. Our hope, you see, the problem with our hearts, friends, is not just the fact that they love evil. The problem with our hearts is that they also hope, long for the wrong things. We are by design creatures that long. We are designed to hope and and long for God. And so there are times when our hearts are constantly wanting, longing for the wrong thing. He's saying here, no, 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 change that. Make sure that you're clear-headed, sober-minded, and set your hope. Long for the kingdom that is to come, that has been achieved for you by Christ Jesus. We need to remember what awaits us on the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the solution? How do we change? We change by meditating on the truths of the gospel. We change by entering into the sanctuary, often and always, thinking on the gospel. What it is that has been achieved for us? What is it that God has done for us? It is in that, that is the power that will produce within us 
real lasting change. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to enter in with Asaph. We're going to enter in and look at, look at the, the, the meditations that changed, his, that changed him, that affected him. What is it that he thought on that affected change in him? We're going to look at that with him now in, uh, in Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, he meditates on four things. There are four truths that he meditates on. He meditates on the fact that he has been saved from destruction, number one. He meditates on two, that he is always with the Lord as a benefit of the gospel, number two. He meditates on the fact that the Lord guides him with his counsel. And fourthly, he meditates on the fact that the Lord will receive him into glory. So let's look at number one in verse uh, 18. Look at number one. Uh, after he's gone into the sanctuary, after he's gone into the sanctuary, this is what he sees. This is what he starts thinking about. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their fall. These people whom he was describing before, these people whom everything seemed to be going right when he was observing them, God made clear to him that they are the ones who are actually skating on thin ice. Their lives of self-indulgence will be rewarded by God with judgment and destruction. He describes them here as being cast down. They go down to their end. They are swept away by terrors that are sudden. The issue here is not so much their lived experience now, it's where they're going, their end. Their indulging on their pleasures is strictly and completely temporal. Vanity of vanities, therefore, is their, is their enjoyment. You have to think about it this way. There is nothing that a wicked person enjoys that means anything. There's nothing that a wicked person enjoys that has any meaning. That's the point of the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. It is all vanity without the Lord. They chase beauty and they try to preserve their beauty, but inevitably their beauty fails. They prize their youth, but their youth fades away. They hold up their expensive items, but those items will not go down with them into the grave. There is a depressing meaninglessness to the enjoyment of things by unbelievers. And the biggest issue here, friends, is judgment. Mark it. Jesus will take every human being who has ever desired and wanted an evil thing and he will destroy them for all eternity in the lake of fire if they are not atoned for. This is where there is something for us to meditate on. I want you to think with me for a second. What is the most terrifying aspect of the Christian doctrine of hell? What's the most terrifying aspect of the Christian doctrine of hell? Is it the fact that there is a never-ending fire? That's terrible. That's horrific, but that's not it. That's That's not the most terrifying thing about the doctrine of hell. Is it the fact that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that never ends. That's horrible. But that's not it. 
That's not the most terrifying aspect. Is it the constant burning, the, the thirst that will never be quenched? That's horrible. That's, that's, that you, you can't even imagine that. It's horrible. We've seen that in the, in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's, it's a horrible thing. But that's not it. That's not, that's not the worst thing. That's by far not the worst thing. Let me tell you what the worst thing is. The worst thing about the, the Christian doctrine of hell is this. It is the only place in existence where human beings only receive wrath and judgment from God. And that's it. There is no, there is no favorable presence of God in hell. What do I mean? Think. There is no rain in hell. There is no kindness in hell. There is no sunshine. There is no rest. There is no friendship which takes away some of our burdens. There is no joyful taste. There is no hug after a long hard day. There is no handshake that reassures you. There is no rescue from anyone of any kind. There are no heroes or paramedics in hell. All the things that come from the good and common grace of God are not there. All there is, is just justice, judgment, and wrath. End of story. In a sense, hell is a place without all the things that we enjoy from God. Think of a thing you enjoy that comes from God, doesn't it? Anything that you enjoy, anything that, that's enjoyable, that brings lightness to the heart of man. All of those things, they come from God. There's none of that in hell. All there is, is just the, the anger unbridled, constant and eternal coming from God. Believers, we must remember and we must meditate on what it is that we have been rescued from. What it is that we have been rescued from. We have been rescued from a life without God's goodness and God's kindness in all of its natural forms that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis without even thinking about it. Medita meditating on this truth puts things in perspective. It renews the mind. It cleans out the mind. You change gradually and subtly as this truth needs itself in a powerful way in your inner man and your gratitude towards God for saving you from this becomes powerful enough to stop you from evil. Now, contrast that, contrast the end of the wicked with the current experience of the believer. That's the second benefit. Look at verse 23. He says this, this is what they're like, that's what they were, but look at me. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Second benefit. I am with God always. The wicked lives a dark life filled only with temporal pleasure. The unbeliever's life is summed up in the maxim, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But the believer walks with God. Whether having pleasures or not, the believer walks with God. Continually. Always. The believer has access to God. The believer is being prayed for by God. Jesus intercedes for us. 
It's not the fact that, that we have God on our side. It's that we have been taken and put on God's side. We are continually with Him as His flock. The believer, through no righteousness of his own, is indwelt by the Spirit of God, can pray to God, meets with God in a real way in his worship on the Lord's Day, is fed by God in the sacraments, and on top of that is told by God that every single thing that happens in your life actively works for your good. Think on these benefits. These are serious, high-stakes benefits. Friends, The believer's life is one that the angels gaze upon. How can it be that such a sinner is loved in heaven so much? How can one who fails so much be loved so much? How can it be? What is it that we have done to deserve Jesus' prayers on our behalf? Jesus standing in heaven interceding for you by name. In, uh, in one of Aesop's fables, a fox had never seen a lion before. And when he first met the king of the beasts, the fox was nearly frightened to death. And at their second meeting, the fox was not quite as frightened as much. And the third time he met the lion, the fox went up to the lion and chatted to him like an old friend. And so it is, Aesop concluded, that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. We talk about Jesus often, you and me. We do. We talk about Christ often. We constantly are aware of His presence, even as we gather together as a church and pray and in the sacraments, we, we, we're thinking about Him. But is it possible that familiarity with Him has made us forget who it is that we are blessed to have communion with? Who is He that we, are to, that we come close to? What is it that first frightened us in that moment like the fox? Have we lost sight of that? That we think that this is such a small thing. That we have Him walking with us, interceding for us, teaching us. Dear saints, think on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think on what it is that you have been given. You walk with the one who designed the universe. You are loved by the one who brought everything into being. Not only are you loved by him, he demonstrated his love for you by being spit on by the things that he's created so that he can redeem you. The third benefit is in the first line of verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me. Not only do I have you, And walk with you, but with your counsel, you will guide me. The Lord guides his children with his counsels. Look at how confident he is that the Lord will guide him. He's talking in the future tense. And he's confident, you will guide me. You guide me and you will guide me. The word counsel here is quite powerful in the context of wisdom literature. 
In the wisdom literature, uh, that is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, those, those five books, in the wisdom literature, counsel given and taken produces good fruit. In Proverbs, for example, if a parent gives counsel to the child, that counsel will change the child for the better. It is assumed in the wisdom literature. That's why Proverbs often says that take your mother's counsel, listen to your father's counsel. And it also says to the parents, train up your child in the way you should go and he will not depart from it. The understanding in the wisdom literature is that counsel is a good thing and produces fruit. The point is this, if God guides me with his counsel, I will change. If God keeps speaking to me, if God keeps communicating with me, I will hear him and I will change. We can say this in a negative way. I will not change if God does not speak to me. But as long as God is committed to speaking to me, guiding me, giving me counsel, this deposit from his word, his wisdom from his word, instruction for life from his word, as long as he keeps doing that, it will produce good fruit in my life. There, right there is your confidence for change. You will change because he speaks to you. You will change as you constantly come into the sanctuary and hear the truths from him, you will, you will be fine. The confidence comes from the fact that we have him and that he is working for good towards us. We could say this in many different ways. We could say anybody who has the spirit of God will be changed and conform to the image of Christ, whether they like it or not. If God has set his love upon you, looked on you, set his love upon you, brought you to his kingdom, you will be what he wants you to be. He is not so weak as to fail in his mission. And therein comes our confidence. Therein comes our, an encouragement to, for us towards patience. The Lord is working in us. The Lord is working. You will fail, but you will fail forward. This is only true for those who have the Spirit of God and God is, kinding them. God is guiding them. Not for those who do not. If you are outside of Christ, do not have the Spirit of God, you have no hope of change. In fact, you have a guarantee of getting worse. What do people do when they become older and older? They become crankier, right? We know this because as your joints become harder to live with, so does your spirit. But if you're in Christ, only in Christ, with the Spirit of God in you, and Him guiding you with His counsel always, you have a, a, a surety, a, a, a hope of aging like fine wine. Fourth benefit, final benefit he meditates on in verse 24, second line of verse 24. And afterward, you will receive me where? To glory. After all of this, I will enter full into your presence. Unlike the wicked that he was envying, Unlike the wicked that he was envying, they are living a pleasurable life now that's only going downward. But I have a guarantee of walking full into the presence of God. So what happens to Asaph after he meditates on this? On these four truths, what happens to him? 
Look at verse 25. We've seen the four truths that he has meditated on. Now, look at, what, look at the result of that meditation. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jump to verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. Wasn't this the same guy a few verses ago who was speaking about how much he hates the fact he is righteous because he's not, because he's not getting all the benefits of unrighteousness? What happened? What is it that changed this guy's mind that completely just turned a reverse? Now he's thinking, I am with you. What, if, what is wrong with me? Why am I thinking this way? I am with you. I have you. I will not be thrown into destruction. You constantly guard me by your counsel. You will bring me into glory. What am I complaining about? And then he waxes lyrical. Whom have I in heaven but you? Now he doesn't desire anything. Whereas before his mind was set on the earth. On the realm physical. Saying, look at what I don't have and look at what they have. Look at what I don't have. Look at what they have. I want this. I'm righteous. I'm beating myself. I want this. You're not giving it to me. But look at what they have. They hate you. And look at all the stuff that they have. That's all he was concerned with before. But now he says, either in heaven or here, I want nothing but you. Why? He meditated on the benefits that he has as one who is in covenant with God. Now he wants nothing else. I just want you. Actually, you can, you can pass me with these pleasures. I want you. What pleasures do you have on earth? Pass them. I want you. What pleasures are there in heaven forever in eternity and eternity? I, I don't care much for them. I just want you. As long as I'm by your side, you are the one I want. You are the one I have. And look at, look at, this, look at the, the solidity and the, the, just, the, just the honesty in verse 26. My flesh... And my heart may fail. I have no guarantee that I'm not going to think like this again. I have no guarantee while I'm here on earth that my flesh and my heart will not fail me and betray me and make me feel like this again. But my goodness, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are the one. You are the rock by which I will hide and reside. You are my refuge. I don't even need to be concerned about my flesh and my heart. Because you are the one who is my rock, who guarantees my eternity. In many ways, and I'll say this, and, and, and please be, be careful with what I'm about to say. But in many ways, my change here on earth is irrelevant. Because he is the one who guarantees my righteousness. In, in many ways, when it comes to entering into the, the fullness of goodness of, the, of existence, my change does nothing. Do you remember that hymn that we, that we sing? In the last stanza of that hymn, I'm forgetting the Our glory in... No, 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 that's the wrong hymn. I'm forgetting the, the first line, but you remember when I say this line, it says this in the last stanza, it says, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. Do you know what that hymn is saying? Don't behold me when you're thinking, when you, don't look at me, my righteousness is not here. Why are you looking here when you're trying to find my righteousness? My righteousness is over there. 
in its fullness, wrapped up in Jesus Christ and all that He has achieved in His holiness. He walked right. He didn't curse where I curse. He didn't slander anyone where I slander people. He didn't gossip where I sometimes fib. My righteousness is Him and Him over there. And that's what I'm going to be wrapped up on. Dear saints, our change is guaranteed because of Christ Jesus. And no matter the rate of our change, if you die like the, like the thief on the cross before you had much time to change, it doesn't matter because your righteousness is there with Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord. Our Lord Jesus. We are a failing people whose flesh and heart fail often. We are often attacked by our own flesh and our own hearts. We are often beaten by temptation. But in the grand scheme of things, it does not matter. Because of what you have done for us, because of what you have achieved on our behalf, because you live and reign over the entire cosmos, seen and unseen, because your righteousness is unmatched, we will live. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to think on you, help us to meditate on you, Help us to not lose sight of what you truly are and thereby change us slowly for the, the remaining time that we're here. Change us slowly, slowly in the way that you do until we receive the, the, the fullness of our hope. We see by sight what we've hoped for in spirit when you take us home. We pray all of this in your name, Lord. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.